enjoyed asking at times on the the podcast i'll throw it to you is do you think the jungle cruise survives at the 100th anniversary do you think it's still in the park in the way that it is or does it have to change as the time goes on uh, or does it just you know not fit at 100 years with uh, when the anniversary happens in in 2055 what's what's your 2055 i i think that everything in orlando theme park wise and, and working in commercial construction as i do and seeing where the bids are and the drawings that are out there. Um, everything is actually gravitating much more short-term to 2021, which is the 50th anniversary of the parks. Um, but does it survive 100 years? I think it has to. I don't think it survives in the same form. Ultimately, I don't think you undermine the story of the Jungle Cruise by changing scenes or changing elements. Um, my opinion about the Jungle Cruise changing or being improved uh, bases itself in audio effects, um, and landscaping more than anything else, yeah. and to make the environment more lush and to make the audio effects and maybe lighting effects more more prominent. Well, and, uh, but yeah, I definitely think that the idea of that. Now, the question, the real question that should be asked, Kyle, is uh, whether or not the skipper lasts 100 years. Well, and, that, and that's a big sure question. Hope, I sure hope that the skipper does last 100 years. Yeah. I really do, because as much as the animation is what it is, and it's not the most sophisticated animation in the world by any stretch, um, the real success of the Jungle Cruise concept is the skipper, flat out, period. Well, I think the responsibility for whether or not the skipper survives rests solely on the the shoulders of the skippers. And I think that's, um, you know, we saw uh, when they were doing the refits, I think when the piranhas went in, so I, I want to say around, you know, uh, around the 50th anniversary or, or slightly before it. Um, Those piranhas are a hoot, by the way, guys. Oh, the piranhas are a lot of fun. We, uh, uh, we in Florida kind of look sideways at the piranhas and go, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you actually get the piranhas, that's, you know, when you, we actually in the water and you see people jump for the first time. Uh, that's one of those elements that at the time I was a little skeptical about because uh, one of the negatives of the piranhas is it took about a minute worth of good spieling and joke time uh, and really took it totally out of the equation um, because you really can't do much. Uh, you've got to focus on the piranhas for that 30 to 45 seconds. So, um, But, you know, there was a push at the time to basically have the skippers drive the boat and have the jokes be on a, on an, on a, uh, on a reel and have it be, uh, you know, on a talk over and basically – just have the the skippers be boat operators and have the jokes be a hundred percent on the digital side of things. Ultimately, with Omni Mover type attraction situations, uh, they wouldn't even need. I mean, the small world goes through a boat without. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody driving it, and and I and, it, and I think it's the presence. I think it's the performance, and it is in fact performance. Yeah. Um, that that uh, makes a difference in this attraction. Oh no, I, I I think it's the sole reason why it it has the appeal that it has. You know, it's you know there's always this debate about that the skipper is not the show, but 
I, my feeling is that the show doesn't exist without the skipper. So oh, there's no, it, there's no question about that. Yeah, the skipper it, is the show. Yeah, it has skipper to, show. it has to be a symbiotic relationship. But as it's being trained, I understand the reason why they push that so hard. It's because you don't want people coming in with an ego. You don't want people coming in with an attitude. It needs to have that that reminder at the start of it that it's not about you as a person. It's you as a skipper. And I think that's the 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 semantics that it's difficult to teach to you know no offense, but to a 19 year old coming out of college, um, you know, kids in college program, people who are hiring in who love the the park and who want to go out there and entertain. It's hard to explain that to them that yeah you get a, you get to do this but it does need to have some some boundaries. I find it interesting about that because when I was when I was a jungle crew skipper um, in 1982, it was considered as entry level an entry level position as you could possibly do, and and, and that's that's really kind of almost startling because the fact is is that the skipper is the show. The people who came down from Schenectady, New York in 1982 to visit Disney World with their family um, and, and complained about the ticket price being $15 a person to get in, uh, those people came to the Jungle Cruise. And came, one of the reasons they came was to ride the Jungle Cruise, and the skipper was the person there, but at the same time, it was a very entry-level position. Uh, one of the things we always used to joke about as skippers is, you may be familiar with the attraction at Walt Disney World, you have to go downhill. But this position is so entry-level that you actually have to go down to the attraction. Um, and the fact that it is an entry-level position as opposed to a revered position is pretty striking. It's pretty striking, mm-hmm. especially on an attraction and a theatrical production um, as iconic as the Jungle Cruise. Yeah, but, you know, it's... you. you... One of the difficulties, I think, is that you, especially with the cost of labor and the cost of, of theme park operations, you couldn't have an entire cast full of Wally Bogues. You, you well, couldn't, you couldn't you, if the only way you could possibly do it is if you had guys on boats and guys, uh, you had two different um, positions. Uh, there'd be guys on boats and there'd be people loading people on. And you would not, loading would not be a jungle crew skipper job. That'd be a job as loader. And yeah. then you'd have. But even then, you'd have to have you'd have to have with see actually with union you'd have to have you know as an entertainment union you'd have right. to have you'd have to have so many yeah you have to have so many people and you know and it it's just a complicated scenario you know I think that at times they have trained the skippers in the art of presentation better than at other times mm-hmm. so I think that that's you know part of what you can look at is that you know they have sometimes. Uh, as as the wheel of of life has gone on, the wheel of you know corporate uh, feelings about it, they've trained the skippers. You know there was the whole uh, narrations program in the 90s in Anaheim where they actually were allowed to have characters, and they they had classes on how to deliver jokes and how to be funny and how to how to work with difficult situations. And that type of an uh, an attitude is just too expensive. You know, in I, 19, um, in back in 1987, I actually had had. Sent uh, correspondence to someone in charge of operations at Disney, and I actually had a meeting. Um, I, I had advocated back as far as 1987 that, that the ad libs be have an approval process, mm-hmm. that you would be able to have some sort of process in place where somebody came up with something that was going to work, that they could submit it and it could be approved. And I remember having this op- this meeting with uh, the guys from operations, and uh, them saying that 
well, we'd have to, you know, kick this over to Disney Imagineering. And the WDI would have to approve that process. And the WDI would then have to approve those jokes as um, they came through. But that idea of, of the skippers contributing at that level um, has been kicked around for a while. Well, that that process is in place in Anaheim. I mean, that's been there for um, four years. Four years or so, where they actually have a suggestion box, and jokes go into kind of a pool. The leads talk about it, then they pass it to to management and Disney legal, and you do get jokes approved uh, that are new to the script. Uh, which have I, you ever have, have you ever you know based on your exposure to Jungle Cruise skippers, have you ever heard of anybody being dismissed because of an unauthorized ad lib? Oh, absolutely. Really? Oh, absolutely. There there was. I, uh, half a dozen, at least. And, and they were specifically located just for that? It wasn't just an excuse? Um, I, I think that when you get to that point, you're usually let go because of a uh, of an attitude of continually doing it. Okay, so it's it's not just the one ad lib. It's... Well, right. I mean, you would have to have something that was really striking that was outside of Disney. But if, if they wanted to use something that they – Look, I, I, you know, I mean, I've never wanted to to have a uh, an appearance of being anti-management or in gossip mongering or specifically going after the the Disney management. I am supportive of them. I think that they do a hard job, and I think that as a skipper, you know, any time that you have to talk about your bosses, you do it under a questionable light. You know, who likes their bosses really? Um, we love our leads. The reason the leads are there is so we can love them and they can, you know, they can be the, the, the fun de- uncle. And then when we have to get sent up to mom to get punished, it's what happens. Now, having said that, there was a time between 2002 and 2004 where I, I specifically knew of managers going out into the jungle and hiding and listening to spiels. Um, and I, I believe it was a regimented and it was a specific policy that they would go out there and they would listen. They would document who it was. And if there were people that were going outside the scripts in ways that were not approved, they would, they would terminate them. Wow. And, 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 so basically, and, and, and I know it's interesting I, that you, you, you do that because it's, it's almost comedic. Um, so basically what you're saying is, is some guy has uh, worked hard enough where he's elevated himself to a management position with the Walt Disney Company, mm-hmm. and he's been relegated to crouching down in the jungle listening yeah, to with teenagers those, tell jokes. With those giant spiders. But, you know, but the problem is, <laughs> the, the difference is, is that in, in the 80s, you know, in the late 80s, that's a silly concept. But if you look at the the litigious society and the way that people have gone, gone over, you know, I think that I... I may have talked about it. it's it's tough after 35 episodes or whatever everything we've talked about you know there was uh, an area where the boats passed next to the Indiana Jones queue and one of the jokes that was in the spiel and it was a printed joke was that you would point over there and be like hey look at those monkeys well that's a great joke until you have an overly sensitive African American family who only hears part of it and thinks that they're being insulted racially have and, you um well and, I asked you before. I'd asked you previously had you heard of anybody being terminated for jokes. Yeah. Actually that that one may I know that that one uh that joke got pulled from the script and we were told that that was a no-go that that's one of the ones that could be could be terminated with without cause on that one. Well, my next question for you would be um have you ever heard of actual litigation related to a junk cruise deal? 
No, I don't think that there's been actual litigation. I'm sorry, from the guest side of things? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say litigation, but it's gone to City Hall. Oh, where, certainly there's been complaints and that sort of yeah, thing. When I, yeah. But no one that you're aware of has ever actually lawyered up. No, I think that lawyering has happened when people have fallen in the water or uh, when there's been physical accidents or injury. I think that that's, I, I know I know that that's happened. Or I yeah. sorry, I suspect that that's happened. I don't know for sure. Um, you know, I've I've been on the I've been on the boats where there's been some horrific accidents. There was a guy who broke his leg and it 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 fractured both his tibia and fibia and it came through the skin. And it was because he was on his cell phone wearing flip flops with a pair of sunglasses on, not paying attention. Wow. And just lost his footing and uh, his foot was trying to trying to step on the seat and it slipped down and it uh, his whole body weight pushed it right up against the center boxes and it just snapped his leg like a, a bunch of firewood, like like, like 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 dry kindling. Yeah, I was I was on the boat when that happened. It was you know, but so I'm sure that those kind of things you know have happened. I don't know that anyone has ever gotten, you know. But the problem is, is I think that they have in other ways with the theme park. You know, I'm sure that there's been people who you know made complaints or they've gone through, you know, uh, you know, there's PETA, there's you know, uh, there's other advocacy groups that will throw, you know, things to the press in a heartbeat. And the last thing that Disney wants is someone going to the press saying that, that the Jungle Cruise skippers are being trained to be racially insensitive or whatever. That, and that's the reason why when you go through training, you sign off that you know the jokes in the script and you're going to use those jokes. It's not, you know, that they have no flexibility. It's that when they come back and they get sued by someone, they want to be able to point to that place where you said, yes, this is what I'm going to do. Because then it's your responsibility, not the people who are who are hiring you. Certainly, uh, I mean, I I I'm, uh, obviously understand that, and and the idea that um, some people may take offense to something, and people oh, will take offense pe- to something regardless yeah. of how careful you are. Um, but uh, but again, I at least to my knowledge, I've never heard about actual litigation associated with Jungle Cruise skipper spieling. Um, no, I don't think there's any litigation on that side, but I I do know skippers who've been fired because of their spiels. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, just flat out. I mean, uh, you know, and, and I think it's it's as much their attitude in in where they go, um, you know, and it's a cycle. At the time when I was there, the first time I was at Jungle Cruise, two different two different groupings. Uh, the first time was about three years, and during that time period, it was a much more relaxed atmosphere. We monitored our own. If someone did a, a joke that was outside of the OG that wasn't in the spirit of the ride. For the most part, they, you know, we would laugh and be like, that's funny, but just don't do it again. And the people who had been there for a while were responsible for making sure that the other people on the attraction would toe the line and that they wouldn't, you know, cause bad things to happen for the rest of us. The right. way the way that I understand the attraction now, it's it's getting close to zero tolerance on non-OG script. That's interesting. That's so, interesting. And so any ad libs are just frowned upon and you really have to watch the tone and the – and. People who've been there longer know where they can go and where they can't go. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it is we always used to show off at the docks because that's where you make your friends laugh. Sure. I think that, um, I, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, but but I, I'm certainly hoping because I haven't seen, like, a, again, Kyle, I haven't seen a Jungle Cruise script in 30 years. Yeah. So I'm certainly hoping that uh, that that the number of outlets that have finally gone through the filter and that have been approved mm-hmm. – um, is there to provide these folks with wealth of material? 
I, I, I would relish the opportunity to, to be on a boat again and to uh, take one, maybe two days to ride the river oh. and then start to go into what, you know, how I would want to do my performance um, and, and to use my own ad libs and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, that, that, that's how they can get the ticket prices down is just have us be a volunteer army. <laughs> I, I'd do it for Well, I will tell you this, and this is the honest to God's truth. You ask me about do I stay in touch with these guys. And uh, 201, every time you talk to an ex-Jungle Crew skipper from that period of time, they always say the same thing. You know, after I retire, I wouldn't mind taking a part-time gig and getting back on a boat. Yep. And every one of them says that same thing. Yep. Uh, we had uh, a good group down there in the summer of 1983, and uh, a whole bunch of guys. And in Orlando, of course, at that time was just entering into the 80s, and it, and it, it was an awful lot of fun for these guys. Well, and, you know, it was the 80s, so it was... Uh probably a little bit, you know, more uh, open atmosphere on the internal things as far as dating and as far, I mean, you know, it, it was just a different era at the time. What oh, was, sure it was. You know, sure it was. Before we jump off the subject too much, uh, I mean, do you still have your original, your training script? No, I don't. Those, I don't get, those get kicked script. around. I, I can tell you that that none of those jokes that were in that original script have deviated that that's really quite remarkable have deviated that much yeah um inspiration falls has been inspiration falls for 40 years uh the butterflies have been the butterflies for 40 years uh you know the jokes the jokes that were written that long ago many 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 of them still exist today no and those those hippos 40 years old you know the i, I understand they've had some plastic surgery <laughs> they must have had to get some they must have had some work done I was thinking about um, my conversation with you, and and as somebody who's who's been on the teams that have built attractions in Orlando, uh, you realize that there's the cycle that these things, these effects have to go through. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the hippos, that hippo effect, which I think is to this day a fantastic theme park effect, mm-hmm. as simple as it is. When they come emerging from that dark water with the glass eyes and the water or the way it rolls off their back. And, and just the ears wiggling, that's all the animation you need. You don't need some sort of 3D silicone computer-generated image. It's just as effective when they come bobbing to the surface. Oh, yeah, and I think those, practical those, effects those, are much better if you, than... If you look at the math, those effects have cycled 80 million times mm-hmm. since that first day. Um, I always tell my um, wife that there, there's something very affirming knowing that as you and I are speaking right now, Kyle, there's a jungle cruise boat that's leaving a dock. Uh, but those hippos have done that 80 million times. I think it's far more than that. If you look over the, the Disneyland cycle, because it's... Oh, no, no, this is, just, this is just Walt Disney World. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, you know... You want to throw Disneyland into it, now you're talking about maybe half a billion? Yeah, I mean, I mean, because I figured, you know, I did the math one time that in the time that I was at Jungle... I had something like 1.6 million people that I interacted with when I was at Disneyland. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, um, when, between... I was, when I was in the Jungle Cruise, I rode the ride, what, eight, 9,000 times? Yeah, yeah. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty startling. And you mul- yeah. multiply that times, you know, 40, 50 people per boat. Uh, you know, you're you're out 25 to 30 times a day. I mean, it's, it's amazing the number of people that you impact. And I, I challenge anyone to tell me a job that you can have an impact in the the tens of thousands of people per day 
you know, let's just say just on the boat side, let's say you're taking 25 trips at 40 people, you know, you're looking at 10,000 people in a day. Now, is that right? That's no, no, right. It's, yeah, it's a thousand people per 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 person. And anyway, uh, anyway, I, I don't want to. I don't. This is not the uh, tales from the jungle math because I'll fail that. <laughs> I guess it isn't, but it is. It is. It is worthy to a certain degree. Um, we we look at the Jungle Cruise as being um, an icon uh, in pop culture, uh, whether it's the Weird Al song or whether it's um, I have an album, a vinyl album, on the Disneyland record. Uh, label, and it's the Enchanted Tiki Room, and inside is the narration of the Jungle Cruise at the time, mm-hmm. the Spiel, and this is from 1968. So you're talking what now? 45 years ago, this yep. album came out, and and so it's definitely there within the pop culture firmament at one level or another. We talk about the Jungle Cruise skipper being the focal point of the attraction, which it is, and that it is performance. Um, this is this is pretty huge theater. I mean, mm-hmm. this is. Well, it's not a, a billion big people who, who who have seen this production in one way or another. So now uh, let's. Well, I think we kind of hit this topic. Let's um, let's skip around. Uh, obviously, a couple of years ago, we had the closure of one of my favorite Orlando icons, which was tied into the Jungle Cruise, which was the Adventurers Club. Um, mm-hmm. What was? Were you an Adventurers Club fan when you were down there? Was that something you uh, went? We, you, we were we were huge Adventurers Club fans. Um, we went. Uh, we closed in September. Um, I, I remember we went in early September um, to the Adventures Club, and what was really wonderful about that was uh, while we were standing in line to go in that one last time, uh, I ran into friends who had worked with me at Universal Creative on Men in Black uh, who just happened to be in from L.A. who were standing in front, and they came from L.A. to make one last trip to the Adventures Club. Um, a huge fans of the Adventures Club. Uh, the difficulty that the club had because what would happen is is people would go into the club, they'd order two drinks, and then they'd stay there the entire night. And because they would occupy the space, they wouldn't be able to get people in. And as Mm -hmm. a result, because of the fact that there were so many actors involved that that it couldn't make any money, um, it was disappointing. But the concept itself, I mean, that was just about the best bar in Orlando, period. Well, and you know, it it was open. It opened up in in May of 1989 um, when the Pleasure Island concept opened, and so it lasted 20 years. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty solid run for a performance piece. Sure, it is. Sure, it is. And 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 not just from what was going on in the library, but also what was going out in the main room. The Colonel was ridiculous. I mean, he there's there's some fantastic YouTube stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's showing him in performance. But I, and the I Adventures think, Club, the, the Adventures Club, absolutely has a very special place in my heart. Yeah, I actually think that it was, it was, a, it was interesting because I think that had those elements been in Anaheim, I think that the Skippers would have. Um, I, I don't know what the dynamic would have been because the Adventures Club, obviously being a bar, would let you, as a as a performer, go out of the. Um, the constraints of the script that you would have to do if you were, you know, on the jungle cruise. And I, I kind of wonder how, you know, if jokes seep back and forth or, you know, what that dynamic was, you know, I, um, I was actually lucky. I went down twice to, to Orlando and the second time that I was at the adventures club, 
Um, I actually got pulled up on stage during one of the cabaret shows in the library. Sure. I, I, I've, I've done that myself. I get pulled up on stage. And they, because uh, I was talking with some of the, the cast, you know, before the show, and uh, they pulled me up on stage and identified me as a as a Jungle Cruise skipper and uh, out of Anaheim, and they, they asked me about my adventures. And I told them about the time that I had traveled to the Canary Islands. And uh, oddly enough, there were no canaries to be found. So uh, <laughs> I just realized I don't want to spoil that joke because I'm using it in, in one of the upcoming radio plays. So, um, But anyway, but I know, and I actually was uh, was asked to come down and audition and, and back in 2003. And it's one of the great regrets of my life is that I didn't come down and actually audition to be a character at the Adventurers Club. It was uh, one of those things that at the time just didn't make sense. And now that I look back, I wish that it had. So. What an, well, that that obviously would have been an extraordinary opportunity. Um, yeah. We go by the Adventures Club when, when we go to downtown Disney. We were down there last night, actually, and uh, and it's just sits there closed up, and you look inside, and what you'll see if you look past the doors is uh, you can see where the dust on the wall is and where the different artifacts used to be. Yeah, and, and all you just see are the, is that in there, but. But uh, we 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 had an awful lot of fun at the Adventures Club. We were there so many different times, and uh, it's a shame the model couldn't work. You know, yeah. maybe some well, other type of venue. Yeah, but it lasted for 20 years. I mean, it's it's hard to to say that that oh, was sure. that that wasn't a success. It, it it had its heyday. It had its heyday, and and I think when and, and right now with what's going on with Downtown Disney. Um, I think when they were trying to reconfigure things and then they threw Hyperion Wharf against the wall and that didn't stick and, and the way they were reconfiguring things, I think inevitably it would have probably been closed. Now, have you been to Anaheim since uh, Trader Sam's has opened? No, I haven't. Last time I was in Disneyland at DLR was 2008. Yeah. the uh, There's a new bar that opened up a couple of years ago. I think it's into its right. uh, third Sam's. year of operation called Trader Sam's. Uh, which has some of the elements from some of the the artifacts on the walls are from um, the Adventurers Club. There's a picture of the Colonel there. There's a couple other items. It has it has the some of the feel of the Adventurers Club. Of course, it doesn't have any kind of character or any kind of you know story driven uh, elements to it. But it's kind of a it's a great place to go sit and have a drink and relax and. We'll be back in L.A. Um, in December, and when we do that, we'll definitely be seeing Trader Sam's. Yeah, I'll make sure we we, we touch bases for that. So, um, yeah. so before we uh, before we get too long on this, uh, I guess we should talk really quickly about some of your experiences on the Imagineering side and some of the uh, the big projects that you were involved with on the uh, the theme park side, because I think that's an interesting discussion as well. Uh, now you had mentioned to me that you were involved with the um, uh, the big hat at uh, Walt Disney Studios, the big uh, Sorcerer Mickey hat. Yes, I was I was fortunate enough to to work um, on the Hundred Years of Magic projects, and uh, I was I was given the opportunity to work on the construction team that uh, managed three different projects. One was the Sorcerer's Hat at Disney Hollywood Studios. Uh, the other was the One Man's Dream exhibit um, at Disney Hollywood Studios. And then the other really cool thing was the changeover of the icon at Epcot uh, at the turn of the century. The 2000 with the Mickey hand and the wand extended over Spaceship Earth, which by every acceptance level I'd say it was pretty garish and probably not necessary. 
but uh, I worked on the changeover, so it didn't say 2000. It said Epcot for a short period of time before they used better judgment and took it down. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I yes, it's it's a bit over the top, but I don't think it's by any means, you know. I I, I know that I know that, and I and, I'm, and I get guarded in my conversations about such things because yeah. I know there's a lot of folks who don't like the hat, but uh, or and wisely the icon. But what I do, what was really extremely um, interesting about it was not only meeting people who are uh, with WDI and realizing how exceptional these people are, and they are exceptional. Um, but also to have the opportunity to do things that normal people wouldn't get to do. When the icon was up there, uh, there was a scaffolding and catwalk that went up across the top of Spaceship Earth. Mm-hmm. And having had the opportunity to walk above Spaceship Earth um, on several occasions, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, as a document control person, I was uh, taking photographs of construction of the sorcerer's hat when it was being built. To be able to, you know, walk around the roof of the Chinese theater at Disney Hollywood Studios and take pictures looking down, that was really kind of cool. So, uh, so it did really kind of give you the the give me the opportunity to have those kind of experiences. Yeah, well, I know on a smaller scale, um, you know, I got to to walk the scaffolding up for uh, California Screaming mm-hmm. uh, in Park Open before the uh, before uh, the park was on, open for the day. And it's amazing, you know, being up 300 feet above uh, Harbor Bo- uh, Catella Boulevard and, you know, having that lookout over the park. It's, it's a pretty amazing uh, feel. So I, on a smaller scale, I, I, I know, you know, what it's like to kind of be getting to see that magic around the, uh, you know, ar- around the park. So no, that, that's amazing. Now, did you work on One Man Stream? Yes. Um, what was your role with that? Because I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's an amazing attraction. Uh, one man's dream, I, I participated as the document control coordinator on the team, uh, managing the construction documents. I was on the construction side of things, not so much the creative side of things. Right. But uh, it, it, nonetheless, um, even just managing construction and architectural documents, to be able to participate in that specific exhibit, that, that's really kind of cool. Yeah. I've got a, um, uh, a script that I'm working on that uh, at some point I'll be doing a full episode devoted to the Walt Disney Museum up in uh, San Francisco. That's supposed to be magnificent. It's stunning, and it's one of those... um, Once again, I don't want to give too much away from that episode, but I went up in February, and I think that it it ranks in my top five experiences uh, (laughs) working with the resort. And I got to meet, um, uh, you know, Diane Disney Miller. um, You know, I've gotten a chance to have some really amazing uh interactions i worked at the uh great moments with mr lincoln back when they had walt's office there so there was uh, an opportunity for me to when some of the disney executives came through getting to meet some people um but getting to to have that experience in san francisco it's i don't i don't know how anyone can have a dry eye at the end of that museum I mean, it's 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 an incredible thing and it, it reminds me a lot of one man's dream in a lot of ways but it's a lot less edited um, sure. I feel like the the uh, Orlando. I feel like One Man's Dream is is a little sanitized, and I feel like the San Francisco experience is much more honest and much more open. I think that, that that's a fair that's a fair assessment, probably. Um, although I haven't been to the to the museum. Um, at the same time, I think One Man's Dream for me uh, personally was I, I found it really 
enriching to participate in that project because when I came down as a younger person, uh, and then when I came down in college, um, there was the Walt Disney story on Main right. Street, and of course that's gone. And and as a result, you think that you want to have the guy's presence. I'm, you know, you have a statue, okay, but you want to have that presence. And uh, I think, uh, especially because he began in film, placing it at Disney Hollywood Studios um, was a good idea. Yeah. Um, moving into the Magic Kingdom it might not be a bad idea either. But you know, that's just me kicking something around. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's one of the arguments that I've made about um, Disneyland and California Adventure uh, since the since the changeover with the great moments with Mr. Lincoln when they. They redid it, and they took the the bank of Main Street and converted it to a uh, a retail kind of a gallery exhibit space. Um, there's a I don't know it it doesn't feel like Walt's presence in the park is there the way that it was when you had um, you know the you know, the movies and the things in the opera house in in Anaheim. And that's one of the things that I think that they really uh, that there's this there's a missing a feeling of walking in Walt's footsteps. You know, you don't have uh, those kind of exhibits or those kind of things at at Anaheim right now, and in any way, shape, or form. I think it's interesting that uh, I, I don't think it's a fallacy. I think it's an oversight, and I think I I don't think it's calculated. I think it's an oversight, and I think it's a genuine oversight in the concept that maybe people haven't thought that way. Yeah. Um, they promote the parks as they promote the parks, and before people criticize them for promoting the parks the way they promote the parks, they should look at the attendance numbers, which are extraordinary. Oh no, no. I think they I think they're doing a great job, but I think I, that I, what I think that they what I think the oversight is though, Kyle, is that this is this is a piece of American history. I mean, it's it's genuinely a piece of American history. This this park is span, the Disneyland park, especially, has spanned generations and has spanned cultural tastes. And and it's not just cultural tastes in terms of the attractions. I mean, it's in terms of the kind of souvenirs that are offered in the gift shops. Uh, that that, well, that it's spanned that, and, and that there is a real indelible American history that exists within the Disney park. Well, it spanned the civil rights movement. It spanned. I mean, Certainly. I, I think that there are things that you can look at as far as Disney's cultural relevance on a, a sociological side of things, as far as how um, how things have changed because of the company and because of the person. Um, sure. Bob Niles at the Theme Park Insider site had a very uh, spirited back and forth regarding the American Adventure and, and the people whose faces are on the screen in that film at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And certainly, what you're saying there is when you talk about civil rights and you and you talk about you know the rest of American history that has gone on as the Disney parks have operated, um, you know it's there. Uh, I, I just like I say, it may well be an oversight, but Disney's a tradition. Yep. yep. It's it's a tradition in a very big way for for the American family experience, especially, and and uh, maybe they just just haven't, hey, let's go explore this path. Maybe yeah. that's just what hasn't happened. And maybe the reason why is because they don't have to, because they're very successful at what they do. Yeah. Well, and, you know, they they have, um, yeah, they they have a really, a fairly clear path that they've taken. I, I just think that um, after having been through the Disney Family Museum, that, that I think it's a, a category in which could, 
uh, enrich the parks, but you know, you're never going to have uh, the, the attendance and foot traffic and have, you know, a Disney history item be as big of a burner as you will a theme park ride. I mean, it's just not going to, not going to ever happen. You as, as someone who's obviously have, has this level of expertise regarding the company, um, do you see the wall between the Disney family and the Disney company? Uh, oh, I, I absolutely think that the, um, just going through the Walt Disney Family Museum and seeing the way that they represent the history and the legacy, it, it is a definitively different thing than you see on the company level. Yeah, I, I think that it's... And, and, and by the way, that's not a knock on anybody. No, I no. I the company at all. It's just, in fact, quite frankly, it could be just a natural evolution of things. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's... Um, I think it's the way that... Um, I, I think it's a natural progression because you don't have a celebration of Walt Disney as a man. And this is why I think a lot of people, it frustrates me when, when alcohol was introduced at that magic kingdom in Orlando, I had a couple of very spirited discussions with people who were like, Oh, well, Walt wouldn't have wanted this or, you know, that this isn't what the company is about. And I looked at them and was like, Walt was a businessman. I mean, above everything else, he understood marketing and business. And yet, yes, there was a level of um, conscientiousness toward the American family, but he was making money at the same time, and he was running a company. And if societal tastes had changed to the point over 50 years that alcohol was was something that was uh, as prevalent or as culturally accepted as it is now, I don't think there's any doubt that he would have supported that. It, it's one of my my biggest pet peeves is when people get on the I think Walt would have blank horse. Oh, I, I can tell you I can tell you right now, um, and you and I are probably on the opposite side of the alcohol thing because I don't like it at the Magic Kingdom. And the only reason I don't like it, quite frankly, Kyle, is because when I first was at the opening of Epcot, you could buy booze, but you could buy booze in like four places. Now you go to Epcot, you can buy booze at 65 places. So for me, it's only a camel's nose under the tent. But regardless of that, I think that when you say that you one of your pet peeves is dealing with people who said, what would Walt do? I can almost guarantee you that Mr. Disney probably would have called that his pet peeve as well. Yeah. Um, I honestly believe that Mr. Disney understood the value of looking for outside ideas and outside opinions from smart people. I, I'm sure he didn't tolerate ignorance to a certain degree, but from but if smart, creative people yeah. well, um, were involved, I mean, you look at the artists who were involved with Fantasia, you look at the fact that Destino was involving Salvador Dali, and, and the fact that the, the company traded so much in the public domain of the stories that they told, whether it's Snow White or Pinocchio, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I think Mr. Disney would have said, who gives a darn what Walt would have done? I, I honestly believe he would have blanched at that. Yeah, I, I just think that the concept is almost offensive because I agree that the company has, has a sense of ownership. It's the same way that with Jungle Cruise, you know, that the skippers have a sense of ownership of their ride. And I think that's very rightfully so. But I don't think because you're an annual pass holder that it gives you any level of insight or any level of... Uh, feeling to what this company would have been or, you know, what what the opinions of Walt or Roy or anyone else would have been based upon the current cultural and societal, you know, uh, situations. And I think it's, it's a very um, 
Disney's one of those situations where I think people get this concept that they have an involvement um, that extends beyond the fact that they have a collection of figurines or that they have an emotional connection through the movies. And people who have those emotional connections and people who have those types of things tend to get emotionally invested in ways that maybe are not realistic and or healthy. And I think we see that with, with certain annual pass holders who feel that they're entitled or that they, they're an exception to the rule. And it's, it's frustrating. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can see where you're saying that. And, and I, I think especially with this, you know, particular company that, that, that there are those emotions that, uh, yeah. Well, and fanaticism happens on, you know, on pretty much anything. So, so, um, kind of wrapping up in the last five minutes or so, uh, any other like stories, any other history of the, uh, you know, the only thing I would really like to say is, and, and, and I, and I'm hoping your patronage does have existing jungle crew skippers is, is for those people to be proud of their heritage. Mm-hmm. I, I think that they're, that, that the jungle cruise is a remarkable thing. And I, and I think it's unique within the Disney history as well. I, I don't think there is another attraction quite like it. Um where you're where where the where you're taking somebody into a themed environment and you're an active narrative. Um ad libs aside, anytime uh you get on a jungle cruise boat, it's gonna be different than the last time, even if it's the same skipper. Uh I, I think that this is performance. I think this is theater and I think that uh as an icon in, the, in in terms of theme park history, I think it's substantial. I yeah. really think it's substantial. I think that, that that every time you get on a boat out there, um, that what you're about to do is is pretty darn cool. I mean, it, it is performance in, in every sense of the word. And I'm proud of the time I've spent on the Jungle Cruise, and I certainly hope that the people who are there now and the people who've been there before feel the same way. Yeah. Well, you know, and I've I've tried to avoid soapboxing as much as possible in the time that I've been doing this podcast because I don't see myself as anything other than a facilitator of an entertainment so that people can have a history of these things. And I, I make it entertaining so it'll last and it'll, you know, get listeners, but it really is about the history. And And I think the biggest thing that I've come to realize about the jungle is that when you look at your trip as a story and you look at yourself as a facilitator of that story, that that puts all of the jokes and all the things into a context that creates the experience for the guests. I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. Um, And and for me, even, you know, the real weight for me with regards to the Jungle Cruise is how long it's been going on. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that right now, as you and I are talking, there's a Jungle Cruise boat that's leaving yep. a dock. And I was looking at it uh, when I knew I was going to be talking to you. I was looking at this album, this vinyl album I have from 1968, mm-hmm. The Enchanted Tiki Room, which includes The Spill of the Jungle Cruise. And I was saying to uh, my wife, I said, this guy in this picture, because the album had pictures inside it, this kid in this picture is 15 years old, and this was in 1968. That means that that kid right now is in his 60s. Yep, and and to realize that it has that existence, it's like I said before. I think Disney has has to be regarded in its place in American history, and certainly the Jungle Cruise yep. does. And because it's in Tokyo and Hong Kong now, it's you know, worldwide, right? Yep. Well, you know, one of uh, my most prized possessions, I have a a Disney uh, Disneyland lunchbox from 1955 or 1956. It's missing the handle. It's beat up in a few places, but the entire backside of that uh, lunchbox 
is the Jungle Cruise. And, and I appreciate the fact that you're going to send that to me as a gift to yes. me for being on the podcast today. Uh, well, I appreciate your coming on the podcast, Tim, and that, <laughs> that's a good place for us to uh, wrap it up. Uh, just as a reminder to everyone who's listening, please forward on the podcast and the information to your friends and people who love Disney, because as we continue to grow, uh, we'll be able to do more fun and exciting things like having skippers from Orlando or Hong Kong or Tokyo or uh, That'd be wonderful. You know, things of that nature. Um, I'll just give the quick plugs toward uh, the things on this side. Uh, Jungle Cruise, C-R-E-W-S at gmail.com. If you're a skipper or know a skipper who would like to appear on the program, or if you know someone from the Adventurers Club, we'd love to get those guys on the show. Uh, jungle, C-R-E-W-S at gmail.com. Also, facebook.com slash Jungle Cruise. Um, we also have our friends Joey and Trevor at Joey and Trevor. Talk to each other, which... Uh, there are a couple of skips, and they do a really amusing and uh, fun comedy podcast that uh, most of the time has things to do with Disney, but other times are just uh, uh, fun little comedic adventures. And if, you, uh, if you're if you a Jungle Cruise skipper and you want to do a podcast, we always have space on the Skipcast Network for Jungle Cruise skippers. Hey, Tim, every episode we uh, finish it off with a hearty kungaloosh to our fans. Since you actually know the history of that, you'd be a great person to uh, pass it along. I would say so, to especially to the Jungle Cruise skippers, former and current. Kungaloosh. All right. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you in the next episode on Tales from the Jungle Cruise. <laughs>